Good morning, everyone. Morning, Bridge family, members of my own family are here, friends, neighbors, fishing buddies, co-workers. I, I pray you all receive something this morning that is far beyond what, what I say, what's, what's on the page here. Um, and I know that for some of you, uh, it may have even been uh, a testament to your, your own courage and strength to even get out of bed this morning and face another day. And I appreciate your being here. I ask, I want to assure you that you're in the right place. So welcome to you, and uh, welcome to your seat at the table this morning. There's plenty to go around. There are big helpings of hope. There are big helpings of redemption. Big, it's enough for everybody. So I just ask that we, we open our hearts, push away the beasts that come at you when you open your eyes in the morning, all those pressures, concerns, anxieties, troubles, all those things that occupy your mind. Just push him out, push him aside, and get ready to receive him. Okay. I've asked several preachers I know how their first time preaching went, and they all said the same thing. It was awful. <laughs> I just wanted to set the right expectation this morning. It's actually a really climactic event for the two of us. After about 15 years here at Bridge, the first time in a brown folding chair in a synagogue basement hearing Nancy Winter behind me say, Jim? Jim Sweeney, I was working in her, in her uh, home at the time, in Rick and Nancy's home. Um, it's just been part of an incredible spiritual journey for the two of us. I'll be preaching this morning out of Exodus on the eve of our relocating to the deserts of Utah. <laughs> Who says God doesn't have a sense of irony, right? So I'd like to ask Amy to read today's scripture passage from Exodus 17. Our passage is Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put God to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Horeb thank you. <laughs> Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Thanks, honey. Let us, let us pray for a moment. Abba, Father, we welcome your presence this morning. And Lord, I just need your help. I, I humble myself before you, asking for the Spirit's help this morning to give life to this text Father, bring words that stir hearts and minds, words that heal, words that provide hope and satisfy a parched people. Amen. 
The passage you just heard describes the incredibly patient parental love and grace we all receive from God. Despite our defiance, our moaning and grumbling, or anger over circumstances. All he wants to do is guide our steps. All we want to do is be our own gods. I will touch on the grumbling of the Israelites this morning, how Moses reacts, and how God, or what God does in response to his grumbling people through Moses. We'll talk a bit about anger at God, about the proximity to God, and how as a united body of Christ, we can grow his kingdom. The question at the end of today's text is a big one. It should grab us, right? Is the Lord among us or not? What incredible doubt and disbelief. Can you believe that they would even think that? But, it, but is it really that strange or unusual? Maybe you're feeling the same doubts right now. Maybe you're feeling distant from him, even abandoned. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you find, you think he's just taking some much-needed time off, or maybe you doubt he even exists. We'll circle back to that question in a bit. We want to say to the Israelites, of course he's with you. He just brought 10 plagues upon Egypt and released you from slavery after 400 years. He parted the Red Sea for you while destroying the Egyptian army. He led you through the desert using a pillar of cloud and fire, and he fed you with manna from the heavens. But the Israelites knew only slavery. This new relationship with God was still fresh. And pillars of clouds, they're supernatural, all right, but they're not that personal, are they? They did not yet know Christ. They did not know the resurrection and its power. Slavery, while rough, brought predictability. They're not unlike us in a lot of ways in their unbelief and their fear of the future. Aren't we facing uncertainty, uncertainty ourselves in finding a new church home? Don't we ask, is he with us? Will he satisfy our thirst? Are we turning to him in prayer and praise? So God leads the Israelites to a place with no water. It's got to be a test, right? They're parched from their journey. They've, their children and livestock are thirsty. They've been walking for days. There, there's desperation in the air. Why would God not supply a river, a pond, even a lemonade stand? There's just no water. There's nothing. God wants them to ask. He patiently and lovingly waits for them to turn to him. He wants the Israelites to understand their complete reliance on him, to trust him, have faith in him, and to come to him with their needs. It's also a reminder of the, the, the fact that God's greatness and our desire for comfort are not necessarily connected. We can do everything right and yet still suffer. But instead of asking, the Israelites erupt in anger at Moses and at God. Moses runs to God, fearing for his life, and pleads his case. And God, in a tremendous act of his grace and mercy, instructs Moses to gather the elders in a show of authority and strike the rock at Horeb with his staff, with God being present there before him. Moses does exactly that and regains his credibility, his authority. He brings forth enough water for this immense crowd, which had to be a gushing river in the middle of the desert. In 1 Corinthians 10, we read, 
They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Lots of symbolism here. Let's take a look. Moses' staff is a symbol of God's judgment and wrath. He used it to turn the Nile to blood. Remember that? He used it to part the Red Sea and then to release the walls of water back upon the Egyptian army, killing them all. And spoiler alert, in the upcoming battle with the Amalekites, the Israelites win only when Moses holds his staff high. The rock is broken, just as Christ was broken on the cross when he took on all sin and felt God's wrath. God takes the blow so his people can be refreshed. God takes the blow so his people can be refreshed. Instead of punishing them, the living waters pouring forth symbolize the blood of Christ, whom God freely gave to us, and the Holy Spirit he brought forth for you and me. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. John 38. Jesus is saying, important point, we can go out into the world, even to all its dead places, and share the gift of new life with others. So God sends mercy and takes it on himself. And yet, as far as we can tell, the Israelites remain angry, still grumbling, still not so unlike us. I confess that I grumble when the slightest thing doesn't go the way I want it to. Amy will gladly confirm this, right, hon? Right. I was recently tested for patience. I was negative. <laughs> so we, we must examine our hearts and ferret out anger and frustration. Do you know anyone who's angry at God or dismissive of him? Maybe from apathy or they've just put him on the shelf. Uh, there may have been trauma, uh, painful loss, unimaginable, unspeakable betrayal. All those deep, deep hurts that, that happen in life. Some hold on to that anger or the dismissiveness so tightly, they take it with them to the grave. I want to say this gently and lovingly. If you are angry at God or dismissive of him and you're stuck in that place, your anger or your apathy is misdirected. Worse, you're hurting yourself by holding him in contempt, effectively turning your back on him and saying you don't need or want the gifts at the table, the gifts he has for you. It's like denying your own inheritance. I struggle to reconcile anger with God with the price paid for our redemption and salvation. We rattle off the phrase, he suffered, died, was buried, and rose again. Boom, 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 boom. It feels mechanical to me sometimes. There's so much more. Sweating droplets of blood in the garden. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. He obeyed God's will anyway. The scourging, the lashing, the severe pain, the emotional suffering rejected by the same people who earlier had worshipped him and called him Messiah. The crown of thorns, forced to carry the barbaric instrument of his own death, stumbling under the weight. Spikes driven through his hands and feet holes big enough for Thomas's fingers. Stripped naked, soldiers gambling for his clothes. Every breath is a fight now. His thirst would not be quenched. And then complete, and then on top of it all, complete and total abandonment. Imagine this. The apostles scatter. Peter denies him. Jesus takes on all sin. 
We cannot comprehend that. All sin, past, present, future. The magnitude of that is incomprehensible to us. His father turns his back on him while Jesus endures the wrath meant for you and me. In his most painful moment, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, he was completely abandoned. It was our punishment. Yet he took it all on himself. All he ever asked in return was for our faith and repentance. We will never suffer as he did. He knows your hurt and your pain. He wants to comfort you. Don't distance yourself from him. Go to the foot of the cross in your mind's eye. Kneel and look up at your Savior. Notice his outstretched arms. Go to him. Repent. Feel his embrace. Soak in the truth of what he did for you. Get it out, man. Please consider God's long suffering on your behalf. He patiently and lovingly waits for you to turn to him. It's a matter of life and death. We know that, right? Let's circle back to is God with us or not? That big question. Is he here? How do I know? Maybe some of you doubt his presence at all. It seems, it seems a fair question in this broken world, right? When we look up from our cell phones for a couple of minutes and notice what's going on. My life experience tells me he's not just somewhere out there, some mystical being. I have been profoundly impacted by his presence. I'm being impacted by his presence right here, right now, this morning. I, I honestly feel his presence here. And I have countless stories that'll blow your hair back. Amy and I are also a story of his redemption. Neither my preaching today as an elder of this church nor my loving wife, Amy, being by my side would be possible without his intervention and redemption. He's lovingly and patiently waiting for us to turn to him. Living water, the Holy Spirit, resides in each of us who believe. Psalm 16, 8 says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. He is patiently waiting for our senses to grow stronger and to see and feel his presence in each of us and in each other. He wants us to rest in him. His burden is easy. His yoke is light. And to be guided by his will for us and to ask. We need faith. How's your faith feeling this morning? How's your faith meter doing? Quick story, because stories are required in a sermon, right? There are two guys walking in the, or, or talking in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is Christian, the other guy is atheist. And the two are arguing about the existence of God. The atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Last month I got, a, I got caught away from the camp in the terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, couldn't see a thing. It was 50 degrees below zero. So I tried it. I fell to my knees. And I said, God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard. I'm going to die if you don't help me. And the Christian looks at the atheist puzzled, and he says, well, you must believe now. He says, you're here, right? He says, no, no, man. A couple of Eskimos happened to come wandering by and showed me the way back to camp. Missed it. Perspective. Life experience. What do you believe? He patiently and lovingly waits for us to turn to him. We're living in extraordinary times of brokenness, aren't we? 
It's not hard to find. I'm persuaded that we are all needed on the front lines, not just our adults, our young men and women too, our teens back there in the cheap seats. Hello, guys. Hi. We need you too. We're proud of you. We love you, and we need you. You're, you're not our eventual replacements. You're our backups now. If Jesus is saying we can go out into the world, even to all its dead places, and share the gift of new life with others, we need the entire church as a united body to be the body of Christ. But first, we must all take responsibility collectively, myself included, for our relationship with God and with each other. So let me ask you a question. How invested are you in building relationships in our church family? Between politics and pandemic, we're more divided than ever. The number one reason young people say they don't go to church is that they have no adult relationships there. All churches are struggling with this and with many other issues in our culture right now. I believe we're an exception for the most part, evidenced by our young people in the back there. Thank you, guys. <laughs> uh, but as a growing church, we struggle with truly knowing one another, don't we? Yet aren't we all blood relatives? Aren't we united by his blood? Think about it. We'll never look into the eyes of a person who God does not love. Yet do we show them that same love? Or are some people just not our type? We, we, we have to get past the us and them. Wherever there's an us, there's a them. That cultural mindset today. And find commonality in him. Having scripture in our hearts but judgment in our heads only benefits the enemy. And he's not taking a break, folks. Negative thoughts or gossip, same thing. Unforgiveness, same thing. We must correct course. Forgive one another. Brother, I judged you unfairly. Please forgive me. Sister, I judged you unfairly. Please forgive me. We must break bread together. God doesn't care if someone rubs you the wrong way. You don't care for your Uncle Mike either, do you? But he's family, right? C.S. Lewis said, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. I'm asking you as, as a final act here, as a final plea, to consider leaning in more. Many already do, and we see that. And, and many have an opportunity to lean in more. There are plenty of opportunities here to do that. This church is mindful of that and is creating doorways for you to walk through, to do that. We all have stuff. We're all sinners. I, I think I'm, I'm, sometimes I think I'm like head of that club. The deeper the excavation, though, the more we reveal things within us that are not like him, and the more we need each other, prayer and the word. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, Sin is our only hope because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. And we live in a web of creation that binds us to all living things. If we want to be saved, then we had better figure out how to do it together since none of us can resign from this web of relationship. And finally, I think former Episcopal Bishop Stephen Charleston really artfully sums up what I'm trying to say. Now is the moment for which a lifetime of faith has prepared you. All those years of prayer and study, 
all the worship services, all the time devoted to a community of faith, it all comes down to this, this sorrowful moment when life seems chaotic and the anarchy of fear haunts the borders of reason. Your faith has prepared you for this. It has given you the tools you need to respond, to proclaim justice while standing for peace. Long ago, the Spirit called you to commit your life to faith. Now you know why. You are a source of strength for those who have lost hope. You are a voice of calm in the midst of chaos. You are a steady light in the days of darkness. The time has come to be what you believe. Amen. I want to invite Pastor Josh back up to lead us uh, as we come to the Lord's table together and celebrate communion.